I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. Jonathan Metzel is back sooner than I expected because of the coronavirus pandemic. In his book, Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, Netzel, the director of Vanderbilt University's Center for Medicine, Health, and Society, put a human face on the opposition to many policies that would save lives and livelihoods. It was kind of a warning of the lengths to which um, white working class voters could either um, have underlying racism or be manipulated to vote um, in support of wealthy donors and corporations, but against their own lifespans. And it's just been on steroids since this pandemic started. Listen to Metzl explain why those anti-stay-at-home protests in state capitals egged on by the president fit a historical pattern and why the politics of racial resentment is a deflection that works right now. Jonathan Metzl, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. It's great to be back. I, I so you were just on the podcast a couple of months ago, and I try not to go back to um, previous guests, you know, sooner than say six months. But the situation that we're in right now with the with COVID nineteen sort of demanded that you come back. We had on Reverend William Barber talking about the racial disparities um, that we have now. Uh, have been forced to reckon with with the coronavirus and um and you sent me a message sort of sort of reminding me that everything that you wrote about in your fantastic book dying of whiteness is playing out in this coronavirus and the the COVID 19 pandemic talk about that well the book i wrote dying of whiteness was was really I mean, I, who knew at the time, but what I was talking about in that book was about the ways in which there were kind of undercurrents of white racial resentment that shaped um, attitudes among politicians and, and certain white voters, particularly in, in middle America, that um, caused them to, what you would think, vote against their own biological self-interests. And so the story I told in that book was a story about how, for example, um, working class and lower income white voters rejected the Affordable Care Act, which would have helped them a lot um, because they thought that immigrants and minorities were gaming the system. Um, I looked at uh, the rise of guns as symbols of kind of white self-protection. And, I, you know, th- that was that was a a book that I thought was kind of had a beginning, a middle, and an end. It was kind of a warning of the lengths to which um, white working class voters could either um, have underlying racism or be manipulated to vote um, in support of wealthy donors and corporations, but against their own lifespans. And it's just been on steroids since this pandemic started. I mean, everything from, you know, it seems like the best possible outcome for many red states would be to expand Medicaid, to give people health insurance during this moment of dire need. Um, And you would think people would be rallying to get Medicaid. It would help them not just medically, it would help them financially, uh, not incur bankruptcies, pay less for medications. But instead, Trump has been actively, actively not expanding Medicaid and, and people have been supporting him. Um, The same thing with guns. Uh, The the gun story has, is, you know, 800% rise in gun sales in some states um, in, in, in conjunction with this idea 
Um, and, and so a kind of across the board, this idea, and, and, and of course brought to bear most recently by these protests uh, across, the, across um, many red states, where people are literally out there saying, um, we, we want to support Trump, even if it costs us and our family members and our communities days and months and years of our lives. And, and the racial currents are just, I mean, just absolutely unavoidable. Okay, so let's, let's start with, the, um, with those protests, because as I watched the video coming from, say, Lansing, Michigan uh, and other places and people just openly defying what we all knew when they were protesting to be true, that the coronavirus is spread if you are, are not socially distancing, if you're not wearing a mask, uh, if you're shaking hands, if you have any kind of physical contact. And these folks were acting in total defiance of everything of everything we know. Uh, is it are they being irrational in what they're doing or are they being rational in that support? for Donald Trump and resentment uh, and racial resentment are enough for them to ignore science? Well, I think there are a couple things to, that are important to keep in mind about those protests. First, I just always make clear when I talk about them that those protests are not all all white Americans. They're not all Trump supporters. Though That's a kind of vo- very vocal, very threatening fringe group that has gotten a lot of validation from from Trump and a lot of funding from um, the DeVos family and other places. And so in a way, because we're all stuck at home, it's hard to see that there are a lot of people in red states who are terrified of what those protests represent, Democrats and Republicans. And so first of all, I think it's unfortunate, just given the way we're all, many of us at, at home right now, um, it, it looks like that's every Republican out there and that's not the case. That being said, I, I try to avoid saying that anything is irrational. <laughs> you know, I think in my research, I, I came to realize that there are there are deep um, ideologies that that make sense to people. Um, I think this idea of government overreach, um, this idea that um, social programs are going to benefit immigrants and minorities, and 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 at the expense of of white people. Um, you know, um, th- th- these ideas. Are, are very very ingrained, and I think that also when you when you combine that with a moment of real despair, this I, this moment of um, you know not just the risk of mortality, but also this fear of you know real real economic trauma, that people fall back on their deepest their deepest fears. We've seen that you know the rise of Nazi Germany on down. That people when they're when they're the most desperate, it's not like they become the most centrist. Um, they, they become the most terrified. And so it, at a moment like this, people fall back on extreme ideologies. It's not like everybody's going to come to the middle. Um, and I think Trump has been very artful at manipulating those anxieties and shifting the blame in ways that I think are, are very dangerous. But it's not, it, I, I just, it's not irrational. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's based in, in a particular reading of, of reality and, and also lived reality for a lot of people. Um, you know, one of the big stories to come out of out of the coronavirus coverage is the the health disparities, the disparities uh, in impact that um, overwhelmingly the victims of coronavirus have been African-Americans and other people of color, particularly African-Americans. What role do you think that plays in the mindset of people who might be looking and saying, you know, that's affecting them? And so, therefore, 
I don't need to be concerned about this. Well, I think certainly that's been a framing and, and, and it's of course true, right? In other words, many of the people who died in this early phase are, um, immigrants, members of minority groups, people who have to either have to go to work um, in, in, in conditions or live in a lot areas where there's a lot of density. And I certainly think that that led to a feeling of kind of white invincibility, especially in the people I've been interviewing a lot of people in this idea that, Oh no, this won't touch me because this is a kind of black and brown problem. I certainly think fueled part of the feeling of invincibility surrounding this. Um, but it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think there are two caveats to that narrative. Uh, first is that I guarantee you a lot of these deaths in rural white America are being underreported just because there's not great data gathering. And so I do think there's a lot of despair in, in rural areas that we're not hearing about. And, and I think the other point is because of these protests and particularly when these red states start opening up, if, if they do, which seems insane, um, we're going to see a lot of, of working class white people um, very sick and dying. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens to that narrative when it really starts to hit home for people. But, but will that narrative hit home for people? I mean, it, it, I guess the question is, does it take people being personally impacted by this before they see the um, utility in all the things that we've been doing now? Well, again, I think that the the one main narrative is that people become more more ideological um, when they become more desperate. That has been true for centuries, and and especially in moments of extreme crisis like this, that people the more the more desperate they become, the the more they fall back on whatever belief system they had before. So it's not like everybody's going to become a Democrat. Um, but I, but I would say that I've been tracking a lot of the stories of people who, for example, relatives of people who are out there denying the coronavirus, who then, you know, somebody passed away in their family and there've been, you know, kind of a steady stream of, um, everybody should social distance from their family or please take this more seriously. We're sorry we didn't do it. So I do think that being impacted personally, at least anecdotally, does seem to change people's narrative. All right, let's talk about let's talk about guns uh, because you mentioned at the beginning of this interview about what was it an eight hundred percent increase? Some 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 gun stores. I mean, it's an unprecedented proliferation of gun sales in 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 the country. Um, and some sales. I was tracking, a, for example, one gun store in Oklahoma that was reporting an eight hundred percent rise in um, in gun sales. So it's it's absolutely unpre- unprecedented. Uh huh. Unprecedented, but to your mind and given your research, not surprising. Definitely not surprising. I mean, I think that guns have been particularly constructed as um, as symbols of uh, kind of a a defiance, a kind of anti-government authority that has been very consciously crafted over the past three, four decades by the NRA and gun manufacturers. And, And the other thing I think it is very important is that gun sales spike uh, in in relation to the scarcity narrative. So the idea that somebody's going to come take your guns away, or the gun stores are going to close, the NRA has been very effective at playing to those fears. So when when else have we seen gun sales spike in the past? Well, you know, after Sandy Hook. Um, when you think we would want fewer guns, but people thought, oh, there's going to be gun reform, and all of a sudden gun sales spike after President Obama was elected. This narrative, he's going to come take your guns away. And if you look at the statements after the coronavirus started, President Trump was tweeting about them, um, protect your Second Amendment, it's under attack, and people were saying things like that. And so this idea that 
people, I mean, people were kind of hoarding guns like, like toilet paper or Purell. And I think that was, that, that, that narrative is so effective. So I think that was, that was part of it as well. What impact do you think President Trump's now daily, and I'm just going to call them campaign rallies from the press briefing room, they're supposed to be the coronavirus task force uh, daily briefing, but he takes them over. And a lot of the things he says, used to say at campaign rallies, he's now saying from the White House press briefing room, what impact do you think that is, that's having on the people we're talking about? Well, I think there, there's a lot of coded messaging in, in Trump's press conferences. I've been following this pretty closely just because it's a lot of the same language that I heard when I was doing my research. This idea that it's somebody else's fault in very racial terms. This idea that you're you're going to get screwed. I'm defending you as white Americans. Um, even this kind of second civil war kind of language. There are a bunch of different um, silent whistles that Trump is is voicing. It's not just like he's unhinged. That then get picked up by by um, right wing outlets. And so I think a lot of this is a kind of signaling that he's doing. Um, Two groups that are that are then kind of taking the cue. I'm sure there's a lot of other kind of communication that as well. But I would say that a lot of this, a lot of this kind of what I call in my book the rhetorics of white racial resentment, um, is 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 coming out in these. And and I and I just can't say how upsetting this is for a, a bunch of reasons. As somebody who's written a book, book about this topic, but particularly because this coronavirus crisis. It really was a moment, like 9/11 for uh, for uh, for George Bush or um, um, other people, that um, that this could have been a moment where um, Trump really could have been a leader for everybody and brought the country together. It, it really represented an opportunity for him to be the kind of leader that he has said he he wants to be. And I also think this coronavirus is something where. It, it kind of demands that kind of leadership. In other words, if there are pockets of coronavirus every, anywhere, we're all unsafe. We're all unsafe. And so in that regard, I, I feel like it's not only um, completely irresponsible, but a, a, just a tremendous missed opportunity. And yet we saw him at one of the earlier briefings where when asked by a reporter if he took any personal responsibility at all for what was happening, and he said, no. I don't take personal responsibility at all for for the people who hear the president's dog whistles, either silent or not so silent. Um, do they absolve him of any responsibility for where for where we are? Well, I think that's the power of these narratives of what I call racial resentment. This idea that it's somebody else's fault is is a is a terrific um, deflection. Really, it, and it, and it, and it it works. I mean, think about the, the 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 interviews I did. People were literally dying because Trump blocked the Affordable Care Act and other politicians um, in their in their neighborhoods, and in in their communities. And instead of saying we want to rally in support of getting health care, it was always it's somebody it's somebody else's fault. And so this idea of deflection, um, I think, is just growing more and more powerful. And so in that sense. I think for, for a particular slice of the electorate, um, I don't think that it's going to be like, oh, we're, we're going to have a kind of let's all turn on Trump moment. But that being said, I would also say that I think there are examples from recent politics of people who are willing to listen right now. Um, you know, I, I, I think of the Kentucky gubernatorial election, the Louisiana gubernatorial election, um, 
uh, elections that were before the pandemic supposed to be won by Republicans and won by Democrats because Democrats went in and really listened to people's concerns. And they said, you know, in very non-jargony term, here's what we're going to give you. Uh, and, and here's what we're going to do for you. And it was basic things, you know, healthcare, wages, things like that. And so I do think that there are people, in other words, I don't think everybody's just falling for the, for the Trump Act right now, but I do think that the Democrats in some ways have to do a better job of speaking to e- economic concerns when, when, when we start to craft a narrative. And, and that's a great segue to the next question I was going to ask you, because when I talked to Reverend Barber, and you know Reverend Barber, he has been talking for years about the fact that we don't use the word poverty in, in politics at all. We don't talk about poverty and that it's poverty that is the common denominator for millions upon millions of, of Americans. Is it if Democrats were to adopt the mantra of doing something, combating poverty in the way that Reverend Barber is talking about, he says that if you take a map of the United States and you plunk down the states where there's voter suppression, the states where there hasn't been um, Obamacare, the states where there isn't a $15 or a raised minimum wage, you put you stack all these maps on top of each other and the and the states where all those things are in common are pretty much the same. So is it possible because of coronavirus, because of the situation that we're in, that a message that's directed at alleviating poverty and inequities will be something that will win over the broadest swath of the American electorate. Well, I do think there's absolutely, and I respect Reverend Barber so much for, for, for that message. And I think it's, it's right in a lot of ways that I, I do think that on one hand, um, people's economic despair is, of course, um, as real and even in some instances real, more real than the virus. And so, um, the, the, the Democrats really need to do, to be honest, a better job at crafting an economic message in this time. I realize it's also a public health crisis, and I realize they're standing up for workers, but I do think that they've ceded too much of that territory in this moment. And I think that there's a moment for what you might call kind of a conservative progressive movement that basically says, um, we have the right to health care, we have the right to education, we have the right to safety and, and better wages. And, and I think right now is a very important moment. And I think that, it, you know, you can just see what, what kind of threat, it's not like everybody would come together maybe under one candidate, but a message like that would be very threatening to the, to the GOP platform, just because if, if their base started saying we deserve living wages and health care, they couldn't give tax cuts to wealthy people in corporations, it would collapse their, their agenda in a particular way. So I think right now is a very important moment for, for that kind of, uh, that kind of progressivism that, that can cut across political ideology. But I would also say, because I'm somebody who studies whiteness, that there's a long history of using white racial resentment from Du Bois's um, analysis on down this idea of what's called a wage of whiteness, that working class whites have Every time they've tried to move toward some kind of unity ar- around economic issues, um, basically um, the, the race card all of a sudden comes out and, and it's very divisive. And so it also needs to be a strategy for how can we overcome the divisiveness that, that sets people apart because of race when really they have common socioeconomic interests. 
Given given your research uh, and given what we're going through with the pandemic, what concerns you the most about the time we're in now? Yeah, it's funny, but I, I, I really, I mean, it's the most obvious thing. It's right in front of us. But I think that this polarization is so powerful right now. Um, and I don't mean just the obvious polarization, but think about it. Like we're all, we're all. Um, in our in our homes, many of us, or in vital jobs, but not interacting the way we used to do. And there's so many ways in which even in our daily lives before, you know, you'd go to work, you'd meet different kinds of people, you'd go to the gym, some, you know, my softball team, half the team was Trump supporters, half the team was libertarians, and I was you know the outlier Hello. You, know, you, you learn yeah i was i'm the only guy without a, bat, a gun in my bat bag on my national softball team i'm just like don't confuse it with the bat um but um but um but but you know you you engage with people who are different than you in in the regular world and now we're in these we're all in kind of our caves. We we only have social media with people who agree with us very often. We only talk to people who are our friends before this. And so the the ability to kind of cut across the political aisle right now, on one hand, I, I really feel like polarization is a vector for illness. If we can't all come together and solve this, this is a common threat to humanity. Um, and, and Trump is benefiting by fomenting polarization. And that might be a good political strategy for him as far as he's concerned, but it's a horrible strategy for how to combat this virus. If we don't all work together, um, you know, we're just going to keep having having this virus uh, float around for for quite a long time. And so in a way, I really feel like we need strategies for reaching out to people who are politically different from us and, and engaging with some kind of meaningful dialogue that's not crafted by, by the kind of polarizing rhetoric. I, I think that's going to be the trick and it's hard to do when we're, when we're physical distancing. And then last question for you, given everything that you just said, is there anything in what we're going through that gives you hope? I do think there are new community engagements happening. I think people are recognizing things that they took for granted before, not just about their neighbors, but about the many different supply chains and networks that enabled them to live the way they they were, the workers who are involved in bringing food to people's tables or, um, you know, keeping places clean, keeping you healthy. And so in that sense, I do think that there's been a a renewed appreciation just of not only of the networks uh, that that are involved in keeping society afloat, but also how, how connected we are. I mean, it's interesting how different the everyday message of coronavirus where people are really recognizing their interconnectedness is from the political message, which is saying, you know, red and blue are totally different and you know let's all be different stuff like so so i think on the on the community level um there are networks forming that that probably weren't weren't formed before jonathan metzel author of dying of whiteness how the politics of racial resentment is killing america's heartland and also director of vanderbilt university's center for medicine health and society thank you very much for coming back to the podcast so soon my honor thank you so much Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.